Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone, welcome to Hidden Histories. I have been lucky enough to interview Claire Mully, the award-winning author, historian and biographer of Eglantine Jeb. A hundred years ago, Eglantine was arrested in Trafalgar Square. She had been protesting about the starvation facing thousands of children inside Austria and Germany, countries that had been at war with Britain only a few months earlier. Claire talks to me about Eglantine's extraordinary life and how she set up the renowned charity Save the Children. I hope you enjoy. Claire Molly, welcome to Hidden Histories. It has been tricky to get you on the podcast, but that's because of me being really busy and you being really busy. Delighted to be here now. And we're sort of breaking the rules of Hidden Histories because we're not actually in a location. We're in my living room. It's a very nice location. (laughs) Thank you. Although if you put your hands down the side of the sofa, you might find some kind of bits of toast from where my small child... Depends. If we we go on for a while, I might do that then. (laughs) So welcome. Um, It's really lovely to have you on the podcast finally. And... Although we're not actually in a location, we're going to talk about some locations yep. because the subject of your book, The Woman Who Saved the Children, is the subject of this podcast. So you are an author, historian and broadcaster mm-hmm. and author of The Woman Who Saved the Children. So can you tell me the hidden history behind The Woman Who Saved the Children? Well, the book has uh, just been republished to mark the centenary of Save the Children because Eglantine Jeb, the woman who saved the children, was the founder of that charity. And uh, it's a fantastic story, actually. So you have to imagine, in May, 100 years ago, she was in Trafalgar Square and she was protesting against the then Liberal government's continued economic blockade to Europe at the end of the First World War, which they were doing as a way of pushing through harsh peace terms and greater reparations. And she knew that the, the human cost of this economic policy was the starvation of thousands of children inside Germany and Austria. And she, she felt that if the broader public knew what she knew about this, they'd be horrified by this. But there was no information coming out. So she printed up a couple of leaflets showing a photograph of a, it's called a starving, a starving baby, it's called. But actually, it's a little two-year-old girl. Um, and she can't stand, she's being held by a nurse, she's, she's got arrested development, so her head is quite 
big and wise eyes, but her body is like a newborn baby's because the, she hasn't had enough nutrients to develop properly. So Edmonton's horrified by this and was handing out these leaflets so anyone would stop in Trafalgar Square, which of course is a traditional site of public protest where the suffragettes were. In fact, one account has her chalking up the pavement, suffragette style, saying, fight the famine, end the blockade. And the government weren't very pleased about this and they had her arrested. Um, and she actually, she insisted on conducting her own defence when it came to court. And she knew that technically she didn't have a leg to stand on because she hadn't cleared these leaflets through the government censors under the Defence of the Realm Act. So she decided to focus on the moral case and hope this got a bit more publicity. And so um, I think the Crown Prosecutor is the only person in this story with a name to rival Edmontine's. He was called Sir Archibald Bodkin, and he, he didn't spare her in his condemnation. But she, she continued, and eventually she was found guilty, but she was only fined £5, which she wrote to her mother, as the equivalent of victory, because it could have been £5 for every one of the 800 leaflets she's handed out, or even a prison sentence. And then... So Archibald came up when the, the court case was officially over, but the press and the gallery were still there, everyone was still collected in the room. And he took out of his pocket a £5 note, one of those big old mm -hmm. ones that you unfolded, mm -hmm. and pressed it into her hand, saying, you know, you were technically guilty, but morally, as far as the prosecution is concerned, you've won the case. And she said, I, I won't take your money to pay my fine, thank you, I'll pay my own fine. But I'll take it towards a new fund to help the starving children of Austria and Germany. And that was the first ever donation to save the children was the five pounds from the public prosecutor in the case when she was arrested. So that's that was the first donation to save the children. But then she and her sister thought they'd, they'd try and build on this wave of publicity because she was all over the front pages of you know the Guardian, the Times, and the Daily Mail and everything. So they called a, a public meeting. So it's another venue mm. for you, um, because they were fairly ambitious sisters and they booked the biggest venue they could think of, which was the Royal Albert Hall. So on the 19th of May, 1919, they turned up to give a talk at the Royal Albert Hall and there was a massive queue. It was, there were people queuing all the way around Kensington Gore. There weren't enough seats in the, in the room they'd been given. And uh, Edmonton was quite nervous, especially when she realised that quite a lot of these people had actually turned up with rotten fruit and vegetables to throw at the traitor sisters, she and her sister Dorothy Buxton, who wanted to give succour to the enemy, as it was considered at that point. And Edmontine, apparently she started quite nervously and she was talking quietly and everyone was irritated. And her voice rose with her passion until she called out, surely it's impossible for us as normal human beings to watch children starve to death without making an effort to save them. And there was absolute silence in the hall and then they, they took up a public collection and that's how the fund was launched. Because it's, it's extraordinary to think because even now, when you think of the wake of World War One, you don't really... You, that the sort of the children who were starving, as you say, on the streets of Germany, you, your mind doesn't automatically go to that. But she went yeah. out of her way to create public attention around that. Yeah, she was driven by this incredibly strong humanitarian impulse, which sounds really obvious. But in those days, like I said, I mean, she was sent hate mail. She was totally mm -hmm. trolled, to use the term that we're using. She was sent death threats. So, I mean... It wasn't expected charity started at home very much, but the need there, there were 800 children dying every week at this point inside Germany. And this was, you know, officially after the armistice. Absolutely didn't need to happen. They could be provided with nutrients and support at that point. So she was very far-sighted. Mm. But it also highlights the fact that there was still a lot of animosity. Massively so. In fact, ironically, um, some of the people she quoted to try and change people's minds were the soldiers coming back who had been fighting out there who themselves said, look, the, the need was so great, we were sharing our own rations with the children of our former enemies. 
because we want to build better relations in Europe. We want stability and peace. And Eggentine was quite moved by that. And also, she, she, she was a visionary in everything she turned her hand to, so she really revolutionised charity fundraising. A lot of things that we do now came from Save the Children, like sponsoring a child, all this sort of thing. And she brought celebrities on side for the first time. You can't imagine Comet Relief without Benny Henry, right? But she was the first person to do that, and one of the people she brought on side was the playwright, George Bernard Shaw. Okay. And he yeah. said, you know, I don't know about you, but I have no enemies under the age of seven. I think that says it quite succinctly. Yeah. Okay, so who was Eglantine? Like, how did her, like, how, you know, where did she come from? Who were her family? Yeah. So she, um, she came from a Shropshire family. They were fairly well off. They had a large house. In fact, her father brought her up. He used to say, of those who live in fine houses, much is expected. So they were brought up with a real sense of social responsibility. And her mother and her rather radical blue-stocking aunt Bun were real mm. inspirations for her. Her mother set up something called the Home Arts and Industries Association. So it was uh, giving people on the family estates initially, but eventually it became a national movement, um, skills in wood carving and, and chair caning, that sort of thing, so they could earn a decent living. And Eggentine used to go along to these workshops and was very inspired by them. Um, so she saw a compassionate idea being turned into a real movement of social change. And her aunt Bun, you know, gave her bicycles, sent her out horse riding, got her into Oxford to get a good, decent education. She wasn't allowed to graduate, of course, because she was a woman, um, but she did study for an education. Um, so she, she had this sort of very well-connected family. And they were friends with the, the Cameses and the Darwins in Cambridge, all that sort of thing. OK, so they were quite academic, quite liberal. Well, her family were very conservative, and she, she okay. initially was a conservative herself, but she became very liberal, and her sister, Dorothy, married uh, a liberal MP called Charlie Buxton, who was a Quaker. His great-great-great-aunt was um, Elizabeth Fry. So she had all of those influences feeding into her. Okay. Gosh, it must have been quite an interesting dinner party at their house. Absolutely. I mean, there's all these stories that one grandmother from the family would would be the first magistrate in Cambridge that was a woman and the other granny would be up for speeding and Eggentine would be there laughing in the gallery. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. OK, so you, do you think that it was quite a supportive background? Absolutely, yes. I mean, she, I mean, they had this wonderful childhood. One of my favourite stories is that the girls used to sneak. There were six children, four girls and two boys, and the girls used to sneak into the boys' bedroom and steal their lead soldiers. And then they'd go back into the nursery and melt them down in front of the fire, make them into bullets and go out hunting all without telling my mum and dad. <laughs> when I was first researching this book, and I stayed in those rooms in the house yeah. when I was doing my research, it was fantastic, because the family still lived there. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was marvellous, but you know, now I've got three daughters of my own. I think it's really bad, don't do that, kids. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty outdoorsy existence. Yeah, entire. lots of horse riding. She's yeah. scattering hairpins across Cambridgeshire later when she lives over here, so yeah. Oh, lovely. Okay. Okay, so... Around this time, obviously, there was a lot of social turmoil with yes. the emergence of World War One. Where yeah. does she fit into the context of World War One in the overall story? Well, she'd had a, a couple of failed romances, which hadn't sadly led anywhere. And she was feeling a bit glum, and her, her sister had had more luck and married this MP, Charlie Buxton. He set up something called the Macedonian Relief Fund. Um, this is before the First World War, when it was then a civil conflict just in, in the Balkans area. And uh, he knew that she needed something else to put her mind on. And she had, by then, really good social work experience from working in Cambridge. So he asked if she would go out and put in place the systems for distributing aid. So she went out. Um, you know, this is a woman who wasn't allowed to cross a college quad on her own a few years earlier without a chaperone because it wasn't deemed socially acceptable. Who now, on her own, got on a train into the heart of a European war zone and started setting up soup kitchens, coordinating making sure the aid was given purely on the basis of need, not on gender or age or race or faith or anything else. 
and and actually while she's out there she's co-opted by um one of the british um ambassador people who said that he was being watched but could she investigate some uh, reports of war crimes and she actually managed to sneak away from her her serbian host at that point in the area she was they were the victors and she dodged between catholic albanian safe houses writing down the names of what she called murdered men she had to hide these papers and she sewed them inside her clothes and she wrote to her sister later about feeling the names of murdered men pressing against her heart but she kept them there while she did her weeks of work and managed to smuggle them back out to Britain later and they were later investigated through her political contacts so I mean she was an incredibly courageous woman as well say incredibly brave yeah and that was that was that was just that when she came back she started trying to fundraise for these children of Macedonia um, but her agenda was very quickly overtaken by the First World War, and she knew that tragically many of those lives she'd saved would have been lost in the in the conflict or the disease and famine that followed it. Okay, so during the war, she did actually become wrapped up within the politics, and that did deviate then from her she was overall never, ambition. She was never a particularly political animal, but actually, when she came back, she she became very unwell, and um, it turned out that I mean, she'd always had this very cyclical health with months of exhaustion and then months of real energy and she's inspiring everyone giving it 120 percent i know that's impossible um and she she was finally diagnosed with having a thyroid condition Mm. she had to undergo a series of operations and she spent the first couple of years of the war just recovering from that um and her sister dorothy meanwhile had managed amazingly to get a license to import foreign papers during the first world war and so she was desperately trying to translate these and getting them published so that people could have a different perspective on the war. And she was hoping to work towards an earlier negotiated peace. And as soon as Eckentime was fit enough, she started translating the French and Italian papers. And they had a massive subscription on it. And most of the cabinet read their work. You know, Schmutz was reading it all over. And it really had some influence. And then towards the end of the war, they set up this thing called the Fight the Famine Council. And that's when Eckentime, right at the end of the war, was distributing her leaflets. So that's how it came to be. So even by the end of the war, she was really an really important person in the margins of what of history. Yes, absolutely. And, and we don't know much about her. I know, it's is, extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, we know all the people she's working with, like Maynard Keynes was an early supporter and he took a lot of her ideas to the Versailles peace treaty uh, meetings, the conference. So um, really she's feeding in, she's getting that direct input from it um, and then turning it, I mean, her agenda in a sense was quite political, though for her it was always about the thrill, thrill of humanitarian need. But um, it it wasn't necessarily so much about individual children. It was about supporting an, a generation. I mean, where there was great need, that was vital, but also about trying to support reconciliation between nations and, and make sure she was really in the vanguard of this wave of people saying, let's never let this happen again. Let's facilitate you know, community once more in Europe. Okay, so by this time, the roots of Save the Children had been forged. Um, how did it spread globally? under her influence it's a couple well so she set it up in 1919 and she was very concerned that it would be a sustainable project not just a one-off pot Mm. of money that that disappeared and so she she, her faith was very important to her she was raised in the church of england although she had a very sort of personal spiritual interpretation (laughs) of that faith um so she wrote to the archbishop of canterbury archbishop randall it was saying it's a non-political non-denominational cause would he support it and he thought, well, isn't that the woman that was just arrested and all over the front pages? And he didn't even bother writing back to her. I think some clerk said, please don't trouble us again. And she, you know, she's one of these fantastic women. She's not going to take no for an answer. So she just wrote to the other one 
and the Pope was much more interested and invited her to meet her to meet him at the Vatican. She had this extraordinary meeting with the Pope. I won't go into all the details, but it's just a fabulous story. And he's absolutely wowed by her. Makes notes in what she calls a grubby little notebook. And he <laughs> he says, yes, well, all Catholic churches in England, as you've asked, will do one day on Holy Innocence Day a collection for Save the Children. But it won't just be in England. We'll do it all over the world. So all these congregations internationally did a day's fundraising and then they said well the, the knee's not gone and that's the seeds that what set up Save the Children internationally and one of the wonderful things about Save the Children is that it's always been about reciprocity mm. so that first appeal in 1919 um, she had the support of the Welsh Mining Unions and these communities in Wales did a lot of early fundraising for the children in Austria but in the early 20s when there were miners strikes and the children in the valleys of Wales were really suffering and there, again there was real starvation the people of Austria, the citizens, the citizens came together from Vienna and fundraised and sent money and support back to the people in Wales. So it's always been about wherever the need is. It's not, you know, developed and non-developed or whatever terminology you want to use. It's always just been about where the need is. So and also long-term solutions, not just sort of ambulance work. So yeah. she knew how to hustle on behalf of those who were vulnerable. She, I mean, <laughs> she was incredibly charismatic. She did her research. She was very determined. I mean, she was passionate, compassionate, marvellous. Okay, so it was spreading globally. Where did she go from there? Well, about five years after she set up Save the Children, I, I think with the Pope's appeal, she, it began to look slightly dodgy. Like, in fact, as soon as the Pope said he was on side, Archbishop Randall said, oh, that looks like a good idea. And he wrote and the Church of England got involved as well. And, and so did the synagogues and all different faith groups. Even the Theosophists got involved. It's the only time in history that year and the next year they did it again that all the different faith groups have come together for a single cause. And they made a considerable amount of money and that's what made Save the Children sustainable. And she felt it looked quite wrong for a Protestant woman sitting in London to be handing out what lots of people consider to be the Pope's appeal money. So she decided to move to Geneva, the international city in, in Switzerland and set up the International Save the Children Alliance. And there, it, then she was inspired. She used to love climbing mountains. She ate a lot of chocolate. She always said, if you're worried about what to do, eat chocolate. So I've taken that to heart, and I'll pass that on to you. Oh I like her more and more. <laughs> so there's this great story. She climbed up Mont Celeb in 1922 with a pocket full of chocolate. And, uh, and it's sheer rock. And she sometimes did this in her tight little boots and long skirts. And she climbed up to the top, settled down on the crisp turf, and looked down over the international city. And she was struck with this idea that all individual children everywhere mm. should be party to the same universal human rights. And it, it was revolutionary because until you were 18, you, you weren't party to human rights at that point. And she, she came up with a five-point plan. She marched down the mountain. She went to the League of Nations, which was still being built in Geneva at that point, became appointed as one of the first welfare advisors in an independent capacity and signed up what became known as the Declaration of Geneva. And that has since directly evolved into what is now the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's the, the most universally accepted human rights instrument in history. It was signed up to by every country in the world, bar one. Um, I don't know. If, if a man had written this, we'd all know his name very well. Mm. But somehow she's sort of fallen through the cracks of history. But her, her achievement is absolutely extraordinary. Because I think everybody who is listening to this could not even imagine children not having human rights. And then and, it's extraordinary. And isn't it? she thought she created that. Yeah, that came from her. And there was such hostility to it. I mean, people who were against it were, you know, very vitriolic about it. But even her supporters were going, instead of the child, the child should have the right to, or a child's right to, 
can't we do children should be given you know mm. much more protective and she was absolutely insistent it's very very uh, ahead of her times that children have the right that we have an obligation to them rather than you know that so she wanted to forge a community that children were nurtured essentially nurtured but also listen to it. i mean the, she, there were five points in her first mm. uh, statement four of them are about you know health education uh, safe environment family and all that sort of thing um, but the last one is that the child has the right to be brought up in the knowledge that it should make a contribution to society. Mm-hmm. So it's the idea of rights and responsibilities being flip sides of the same coin. And that was really new at that point. Did she, what was her personal life? So did she have children? Was she married? She didn't. No, she, as I said, I mean, she, she fell in love twice. She fell in love with the rather magnificent Marcus Dimsdale, who was a great horseman and a Cambridge Don. Um, and they did a lot of riding thunderous horses, which she wrote about in her romantic novels that she penned on the side. Not that she was busy enough, but there you go. And uh, <laughs> um, unfortunately, when he proposed it, it was actually to one of her friends, which was rather tragic. So that went on. And then she fell in love with a woman called Margaret Keynes, who was the younger sister of John Maynard Keynes, the economist, um, with whom she'd worked for some years in Cambridge doing social work. And, uh, and they had a wonderful romance over many years. And they swapped they couldn't swap rings. They knew that it was not considered acceptable in those days, but they swapped um, necklaces which they could wear under their shirts. And, uh, yeah, there's a wonderful stash of letters between them, very gossipy, rather lovely. And once, when Eggentine doesn't write in time, Margaret's complaining, do you think the suffragettes have been at the post box? So <laughs> they're kind of radical women's romance. Um, but Margaret wanted to have children in the end. She, she married somewhere else, and, and Eggentine never had children. And, and in the early, when people... People... People wrote about her in the 19, late 1920s, early 30s. They said, you know, she sacrificed her life to save the children. I don't think it was like that. She, she never actually wanted to have children. And she found fulfilment in her life through her vocation, which was setting up Save the Children. And in fact, she, she never actually liked children very much. Um, she called them the little wretches once. And uh, <laughs> she used to teach in, uh, in Marlborough for a while in Wiltshire, um, but only for a year, as much as she could hack, really. She found them exhausting. She said she'd rather be having her teeth pulled out in the dentist than give another religious education class. So, um, mm. yeah, there's no, there's no question she wasn't fond of individual children. On a bad day, I know how she feels. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're lovely. Um, okay, so they're both of those things. <laughs> exactly. So, what is, um, what's her legacy now, and why is it that we know so little about her? Well, her legacy is. is two things um first of all of course we have this remarkable development agency i i worked at save children's how i across i came across a story i worked there for about five or seven years and you know i I researched my agency i'm a real researcher so before i decided i was going to move to the third sector and i wanted to make sure you know that they had really good principles that it was all done on the basis of need no other considerations and it was very independent and they're very efficient so you know they they've they tick all those boxes. I mean, the little they give to their fundraising and marketing and admin versus the amount they give out and the way they check that the recipients receive the aid. I mean, they're a fantastic organisation. Um, so that is that is one of her legacies, you know, the wonderful work of Save the Children. And this year they've launched their campaign for children who have been in conflict, which is a reflection of that early work 100 years ago when she was working for the children in Germany mm-hmm. and Austria after the First World War. So they do fantastic work. But her other major legacy, of course, is the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which informs so much of our legislation in the UK, how schools, sports centres even are set up. Um, you know, my sister works in uh, for um, children's agencies as well, and when that baby P case came mm. up, all of the work relates back to this convention. So hugely influential 
And as I said, there's only one country in the world that hasn't signed up to it. Not that all these countries have achieved that, but it's a really important bit of international um, guidance for which they can work towards and which they can also be checked against by the international community. So massively influential. And I presume is the groundwork for many other charities that are focused around children. So many charities work from that. So obviously um, UNICEF being one of them, but so many charities work from that. And and not just agencies as well. I mean, it informs our um, uh, state-provided facilities, all sorts of things. And obviously she's an incredibly fascinating woman, but what was it that really drew you to her? to make you want to write a book about her, because that's an enormous undertaking to be somebody's biographer. (laughs) So I used to work at Save the Children, and I went on maternity leave to have my first child, and I knew a little bit about her, I thought I might write an article about her. I'd seen this photograph of her above my boss's desk, and she looked a bit like my boss, actually. Very, quite austere in that photograph, very determined, professional, but slightly feminine, and I was quite intimidated by my boss at the time. And I thought, well... You know, maybe if she's like her, then it won't be that exciting. And then I went down into their archives and I found all this stuff shoved down Tupperware boxes. Um, and one of them was this image she'd drawn of herself. And it's this beautiful pen and ink sketch. She's always very, she's quite cheeky. She had a very black sense of humour, really. But this photo, this picture, she draws herself striding into action as if she's a very important person with a huge file of important papers under her arm. And it looks like she doesn't notice, but actually the case is open. All these papers are flying out at the back. And her shoelaces are undone and trailing in the mud. And I just thought, she's not that self-important. She had, you know, who wants to represent themselves like that? She had a great sense of humour. She was quite humble about it. And she had a real sense of fun. And I just got very intrigued by her. And the second thing I found was that A Starving Baby leaflet that I talked about at the start. And in the top right-hand corner, it had in her handwriting, it said, suppressed, with an exclamation mark. And it was the last leaflet that she had. And I thought, gosh, I've got something, you know, from the start and from that moment. And that, that really deserves looking into that's amazing to be able to actually locate that sort of primary material i was very lucky there was a lot to be found so yeah all those love letters were wonderful her handwritten um you know the story romantic books that she wrote and then all the campaigning material as well it's fantastic there must be a wealth of sort of things that you still want to go into with her and it's always it's always good to drill down a bit deeper it's always interesting to find out a little bit more but um yeah Maybe you should republish one of her romantic novels. Well, one of them I thought was... I mean, I was crying in one of them. They're actually social novels. They were designed to expose the ills of Edwardian society to her readers. But she knew enough to know that she had to sugarcoat them in tales of romance if anyone was going to look at them. So they are quite a good read. So in the style of Hidden Histories, um, and you have mentioned the Royal Albert Hall. Yes. Where can can people go to? As if they're sort of following the trail... Of Well, her hometown this year, well, is Ellesmere in Shropshire, mm-hmm. and they're very proud of her. And this year, for the centenary, they put up home of Eglantine Jeb. Um, so you can go down there, see where she first learnt to ride across the fields, <laughs> and go into Wales, where she preferred the sort of more rugged mm-hmm. countryside, I think. Um, and then she lived in Cambridge for a number of years. In fact, her uncle was the MP for Cambridge University. Oxford and Cambridge used to have their own oh. MPs, bizarrely, back in the day. But he was real pro-suffrage, so that's good. Women's suffrage. Um, and then, of course, the sites in London, so um, Trafalgar Square, she was chalking out the pavements under the lions there. Uh, then the court case was at Mansion House Court. It's the only private house with a court in it. That's very interesting to if you get a chance to go inside. The Royal Albert Hall, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, where else? Uh, 26 Golden Square was the first Save the Children office, which was donated to them. They've always been very aware of getting the value of every penny. 
but then she moved to Geneva and there are some sites there there's um there's actually a plaque but not to her on um the address that she lived at in Geneva and she's buried out there and there's a few other plaques actually um in Marlborough, on the school where she once mm-hmm. taught, although she hated it, she's remembered there with a plaque. And there's a plaque in Regent Street in Cambridge. But the other nice thing is, last night I was at um, Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford, where they unveiled a new bronze bust of Eglantine Jed, because that was her alma mater. And I asked them where they're going to keep it, and I'm glad to say it was a toss-up between the chapel and the library. And she did say Oxford was her bliss- a blissful paradise of books, and I think they're going to put it in the library and not the chapel but in the chapel she's remembered with these glass chandeliers that were made from subscription from her college friends and it's always made me laugh because when she was a rather frustrated student at Oxford she used to say that if the next intake of students weren't any more interesting she was going to liven things up by putting a bomb in the chapel so now she's remembered there with glass chandeliers (laughs) (laughs) and you've been working really hard to promote the fact that it is a hundred years and since the beginning of Save the Children yeah um, what are, what are sort of things have you been doing? You mentioned the bronze bust. Yes. It appears quite a lot on your Instagram account. It's fabulous. Thank you. But that's partly because the rather fantastic sculptor, Ian Walter, who is an international award-winning sculptor, is also my husband, I feel. I should put my <laughs> hand up and say. So um, it's been great fun working with him on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, doing quite a few podcasts, like this mm-hmm. one for one. Um, obviously, I mean, one of the wonderful, really enjoyable things we did was... Um, Save the Children had a big fundraising event for the centenary. I have to say it made many millions of pounds. It was the most extraordinary evening. And it's all going directly to the programme work. Um, But we did a small play um, written by a woman called Charlotte McLeod. And she wrote, it was only a 10-minute playlet. And it was about Eglantine being arrested. And uh, Jolie Richardson played Eglantine Jeb. And the they made it the judge in the trial rather than the prosecutor was played by Helena Bonham Carter so Amazing. that was a fantastic bit of theatre <laughs> about it so her story really is beginning to ignite you know a bit, a bit of excitement which is wonderful oh that's fantastic and your book where can people buy it and you the, the proceeds do go to Save the Children all the royalties go to Save the Children as they did when it was first released um, I mean now it has got a new introduction and, and so on so it's worth getting the new copy of it um, but all the royalties do go to Save the Children which I'm delighted about and it should be in all good bookshops but if it's not please ask them to get it in fabulous no they absolutely should and please do if you, uh, go and buy Claire's brilliant book and just know that it's all going to a fantastic cause and where can people find you on social media? You're quite active on both Instagram and Twitter. I am, I am. So, well, my name is Claire Mully. There's no I in Claire. So so look me up and say hello. Brilliant. And Claire's also the author of The Women Who Flew for Hitler as well. And so please look into that too. And I'm sure that you will be... The Spy Who Loved. And The Spy Who Loved. <laughs> so three books. So I'm sure you'll be back at some point in histories to discuss one or both of those that would be great thank you very much Helen thanks Claire nice to have you Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.